Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by the artist Stuart Pearson Wright. He's famous, of course, for his portraits, but as you will hear, he has many other talents and interests, including sculpture, film, set design, and more. In this episode, we discuss his early life, which was not easy, his time at the Slade College of Art, and how he lived in a van and ate jacket potatoes. We talk about his relationships and influences early on in his career, his work ethic, and we try to establish the difference between creative and commercial value, if indeed there is one. Now, we have always had a keen interest in the art world and are delighted to partner with Boysdale in London to launch the very first Waverton Art Prize this summer. And we're thrilled to have Stuart as a judge in our first year. We hope to establish the Waverton Art Prize with its £10,000 cash prize as a popular annual competition. The winner will be announced by Stuart later this month and the shortlist will be made available to purchase from the online gallery boysdaleart.com. So without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Stuart. This is the Why Invest podcast. Stuart Pearson Wright, welcome to the podcast. Morning. Stuart, let's start with your background. Where did you grow up? Where did you study? And how did you start your career? So I grew up sort of all over the place, here and there. I had a very sort of nomadic childhood, mainly in different parts of Sussex, also bits of London, Battersea Park. I was attacked by a goat in Battersea Park, apparently, when I was two. And when my mother left my first stepfather, when I was, I think, possibly around six, something like that. We lived here and there and everywhere on people's sofas and uh, lived at my uncle's house for a couple of years in battle in Sussex. And we eventually ended up in Eastbourne, also in Sussex, when I was about nine. I lived there until I was 19. And then I went off to university and I went to the Slade School of Fine Art, which is part of University College London. And did you enjoy your time at the Slade, your three or four years? Um, I had quite mixed feelings about it, in all honesty. Uh, it wasn't quite what I expected. I was sort of expecting people there to teach me how to paint, but there wasn't really any tuition at all. And I felt a bit ambivalent about the approach that the tutors took there seemed to be, well, I suppose I was swimming against the tide a bit, making figurative painting at that point. The school was, I think, in the process of trying to reinvent itself, along with all the London art schools, and become very conceptual. I was even told off for sitting at an easel once and told that artists ought to be standing up and making gestural work on walls. And I got criticised for wearing Victorian trousers as well. So I was kind of rebelling against the rebels in a way. I did feel as though I was swimming against the tide. And I was nearly expelled at one point as well. I was feeling a bit dissatisfied with the feedback from the tutors and managed to get an appointment with Brian Sewell, who was art critic of the Evening Standard at the time. And I had to go and get some paintings from the school on a Sunday and turn up with my van and my ID card, but the security guard wouldn't let me in, despite the fact I'd shown him my card and explained what I needed to do. So I 
went round the back of the school, jumped over a big gate and broke in through the sculpture department. When I left the school with all my paintings under my arm, all the security guards kind of rugby tackled me to the ground and physically manhandled my paintings out of my arms and then rang the Slade professor who had to abandon his um, Sunday roast to come and talk to me on the phone. And he tried to have me expelled from the school and that failed. The dean of students took my side. And so the Slade professor never spoke to me after that. He used to blank me in the corridors. And then when I started selling my work in my degree show, in fact, I sold my complete degree show, that really, really got up his nose. Did you tell him for how much? Well, he wouldn't speak to me at all, but I heard him stamping his feet up and down and talking to another student and referencing the fact that some students were selling their paintings and, and they were selling them for far too much and it wasn't right. It sounds like you didn't find a great deal of inspiration in the tutors, but who were your big influences at that time in your career? Actually, sorry, I should add that one of the tutors there was a big influence. That was a chap called Jock McFadden. I think all these things sort of happened before Jock came onto the scene. But Jock is a great stalwart of British painting, and he's now a Royal Academician. And I actually had a studio next to him in London Fields for several years. And so he's actually been a major influence. So it is ironic that although I felt a bit ambivalent about the school as a whole, there was one nugget of gold within its hallowed walls, and that was Jock. It's probably my biggest influence as a sort of contemporary. It sounds like you may have had some early success selling your degree show, but then what happens after that? What doors do you then knock on after you finish art school? And how does one even think about forging a career? And we're going to maybe come on to talk about how young artists are forging careers now, but how did you do it back then? Well, you know, that's a very good question because you see, I came from a working class family and quite a broken one at that. So I had absolutely no rule book at all for moving into the art world. It was completely unprecedented in my family. I had no idea what I was doing. All I really managed to do was inherit some chutzpah from my mother, which held me in good stead because I knew that intuitively, if I wanted a career, I had to pull my finger out and create one. That's all I knew. I didn't know how I was going to do it. But it meant that I was hungry, very, very hungry for success. I worked my ass off when I was at the Slade. I used to hide from the security guard when he came around at eight o'clock. I used to hide under a table, wait till he'd left the building and turned the lights out, hiding under there for about 10 minutes. Then I'd emerge and switch the lights on and I'd work till about 11 o'clock every night. And then I'd go and get a jacket potato from Budgeons and crawl back to my student lodgings. And in fact, in my third year, I ran out of money and had to live in my van in Primrose Hill for a term, still existing on jacket potatoes. So I'm not presenting this as a sob story. It was just the story of someone really working their ass off because I knew that if I didn't make a go of things, that I'd be destined to work in Burger King all my life. So that was the first element. I was very, very hungry for success because it was the only option open to me. I knew I was unemployable. So I had my feelers out, 
if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, my antennae were, were buzzing all the time. So I was always looking for opportunities and I was making portraits, but I began to instinctively feel that I needed to paint people of note in order for people to notice what I was doing. To give you an example of the kind of opportunity that I created, I once saw the actor John Hurt walking down Old Compton Street. And so I just ran up to him and stopped him and asked him whether I could paint his portrait. And I had this little portrait that was about three and a half inches square in my pocket, which I'd painted on a little oak panel. And I showed it to him and he agreed. You know, he said, "Okay, yeah, let's do it. So I painted his portrait. I then managed to flog that to the National Portrait Gallery. I just took it down there and said, look, I've got this portrait of John Hurt. Would you like to buy it? And they said, yeah, yeah, we'd love that. Thank you. And so that's the sort of thing I was doing to try and forge ahead. And the National Portrait Gallery was actually very significant in my career, in the early stages of my career. Because in addition to buying that portrait of John Hurt, I won the what was known as the BP Travel Award in 1998. And that was a sum of money given to me to travel around Britain. And I made paintings as I went, which formed the bulk of my degree show. And then by the most fortuitous stroke of good fortune and good timing, as I took my degree show down from the walls and emerged into the UCL quadrangle, I laid these paintings out on the grass And then the huge armoured truck arrived with a team of blokes with white gloves who picked these paintings off the grass and then carefully packaged them and uh, took them down to the National Portrait Gallery where they were exhibited as a result of this travel award, you see. So I came straight, literally straight from a degree show to having a solo exhibition at the National Portrait Gallery. That must have been unheard of. It was great timing, but it meant that I don't know how many people saw that exhibition. You know, I I got some coverage in some of the London newspapers and national newspapers. So that was all good. And then a couple of years later, I went on to win first prize in the BP Awards as well. So I got great coverage. You know, from that point, I started getting commissions and then they just started rolling in and they didn't stop. And there was a period from, I'd say, about 2000 to 2008, where I just painted portrait commissions. And during that time, I bought a sweatshop in East London. And uh, it was like a derelict building on Roman Road Market. And in those days, you know, Roman Road wasn't trendy at all. It was it was like the Wild West. You know, you'd relative often see people having their brains pulverized against, um, you know, the shop fronts opposite people being stabbed illicit sexual acts happening in the street directly out my window. And then it was ironic that 13 years later, when I left London, the first cafe opened directly opposite my flat that was selling flat whites. Top of the market, perhaps. I mean, I suppose you can look around London and maybe you just plot where the first flat white was made. And that's the top of the market. Maybe that's a good way of attributing value to it. But so it sounds to me like it's a mixture, a sort of heady mixture of good fortune and, and a good deal of hard work. What do you think sort of rolling forward to today are the big challenges for young artists who are trying to sort of cut their teeth? And, you know, how different was it back in the 90s compared to noughties and, and even 2020s? 
Well, it's interesting. My view is that on one level, young artists these days have got it much easier. And purely on the basis that we now have the internet. You know, I'm old enough to remember getting my first email address and I was in my early 20s. And the internet was around in the late 90s, but I wasn't aware of it. I didn't use it. I didn't Google things. And the thing is, with the internet now, people can find their crew. They can find their crowd. They can work out where they fit in. I had none of that. And also, because I'd come from a working class background, it was a real struggle for me. I knew nothing about classical music and you know, my experience, my cultural experience was Coronation Street and Blind Date mm. and cigarettes. I didn't know who Foucault was. I didn't know who, you know, the German realists were. I didn't know anything about Offenbach. This wasn't part of my childhood. So anyway, mm-hmm. these days, kids have access to the world at their fingertips, which I hope cuts through class barriers to an extent. But I suppose that with that comes a bigger scrum because the world has opened up so much. It's a bigger fish pond to have to fight through. So I don't know. I don't think it's ever easy to become an artist, particularly when one has to deal with careers advisors laughing at you in your careers interview when you tell them you want to be an artist. I shouldn't think that sort of thing's changed. I wonder that in changing tack a little bit and thinking about the value that one attributes to art and this podcast is called the Why Invest podcast and we try and sort of attribute value to, you know, whatever we're talking about. Where do you begin when valuing art? And second question, is there always this kind of dissonance between commercial and creative value? It's interesting. You see, If I'm thinking about the question, how does one value art? I can only really speak from my own experience, which is how I valued my own art that I was making. And I've always sort of divided what I make into two disparate elements. There are the portrait commissions that I make, and there's the work that I make for myself, as it were. And when I was starting out, I found that I was very, very resistant to selling the work that I'd made for myself. I valued it so highly because it was so personal, I suppose, that I didn't want to part with it. Whereas I was very happy to sell portrait commissions, obviously, because they were for someone else. And that's how they had appeared. And in terms of how how I valued my portrait commissions, I just responded to the value that other people placed on them because when people kept asking me, could you make a portrait of my wife or my child or whatever, I just had to keep increasing the price because the demand was increasing. came to the point where I just kept having to add another zero on the end because I was starting to get this big queue of people waiting. You know, and I had this building I was trying to renovate. It didn't have any windows and it was full of pigeon poo. <laughs> you know, I had a lot of building work I needed to do. I had no other source of income. So, you know, I was just thinking, well, I'm going to have to charge a bit more for this. And and over time, the price increased. When I had started out, if I'd known the prices I'd be charging for my paintings in 10 years, it would have made my eyes pop out. I wouldn't have believed it. I was living on jacket potatoes when I was growing up as a student, baked beans. 
you know, it was astonishing. I remember going to buy my first pack of smoked salmon and thinking, wow, I've made it now. You know, I'm eating middle-class food. You know, sun-dried tomatoes are now available to me. But in terms of how art is, is valued generally, I just think it's the most bizarre, bizarre set of equations I've never understood. I, I walk around art fairs very occasionally. I don't really like attending them, to be honest with you. Why didn't you like attending them? Well, a friend of mine once said, look, the mummy pig should never see the sausages her children become. I suppose it's the, the commercialization of it. I struggle with it a bit, you know. And I must admit, I do struggle with the idea of people investing in art and buying pieces of artwork, which they then put in storage because they want to increase their value. And I, I can understand economically it makes sense. But as an artist, you know, of course, if I sell work, I, I'm hoping that someone buys something because they love it and because they want it in their living room, they want shirts to their friends. And But then, you know, at the same time, I've got to feed my family. So it's hard. Well, that's it, exactly. So presumably at some point there's a trade-off, and I suppose this is kind of what I'm getting at. There must be a trade-off where there's something in your mind, and I suppose it's, it's perhaps easier for you because you, you have commissions and there's a sort of clear client and you can adjust the price to whatever they are willing to pay. But yeah. there has to be some sort of reconciliation between the commercial value and the sort of creative pursuit. Yeah, there does. But to be honest, I still feel as though my whole career has been blagged. I've been blagging my way through it from the start. You know, to me, it's like I'm trying to play Monopoly or Risk or something without a copy of the rules. And I've made it up as I've been going along. I've done all right. You know, I started in a council house and I now live in the grounds of a fabulous derelict 14th century castle in Suffolk and have a wife and a family. You know, I sort of feel like I blagged my way through it. I still don't quite know what the rules are, but I made it work. You know, I made the system work for me and I still continue to feed my family by using a brush and only using a brush. And it feels like somehow I made it work and I still don't really know how. I just know I worked very and continue to work very, very long hours. Yeah, well, that presumably must be the key is that work ethic i think you're probably being too self-deprecating this is maybe a hard question of of like how do you balance your time between output and like study do you feel that you have to dedicate a certain percentage of your time learning continuous learning and that could be anything by the way from reading books on classical art to you know learning how to computer program well it's a good question because I think that my recent realization has been that I've been spending far too much time making portrait commissions exclusively. So for the last three years, I've pretty much devoted at least 95% of my working time to making portrait commissions. I've made occasional very small things, and that's become frustrating and also unsustainable really in terms of my mental well-being because you know there's nothing else coming into the pot as it were so about a year ago I think I decided I had to change my working life what I've started doing is I work three days a week at the moment on making portrait commissions and then the other two days are devoted to 
getting on with things that I want to make that interest me. And within that framework, I've also started doing lots of courses because the element in this that's sort of missing from the conversation largely is sculpture. Because, you know, when I started at the Slade, I was I was actually mainly making sculpture. And I kind of got sidelined a bit into making paintings because my girlfriend at the time ran off with another woman and and it became a bit awkward being in the sculpture department because she was there. And I had a space in the sculpture department and the painting department and I was kind of playing the system a bit. And then one day the head of sculpture said, look, you need to decide whether you're doing sculpture or painting. And because it was a bit awkward with this ex-girlfriend and, you know, I thought, well, maybe I should just just go up to painting. So I went up to painting and then that's where I've been ever since. 30 odd five years later, I'm still almost exclusively making paintings. So I decided, look, I've got to get on with some sculpture. So I've been learning coppersmithing and welding and learning how to use a sewing machine and really trying to get back to the sculptures that I was trying to make when I was 19, which sounds crazy. Mm. So that's been the focus of my efforts over the last year, I'd say, when I've not been making commissions. And it's a very slow process because I'm kind of starting almost from scratch. Obviously, there are transferable skills uh, in any sort of visual art form, but there's a lot of learning technical stuff from scratch, like mold making, you know, beating copper is very different from painting portrait. Yeah. I want to turn though to our Waveton Art Prize because you are kindly judging the Waveton Art Prize this year. And I'm wondering, what are you looking for? What should sort of the young artists be thinking about? And it's probably a bit late now because all have been submitted and we've done the short list. But I'm curious to know what process you're applying to the judging. Well, I won't be looking for anything, is the answer. I'll be relying entirely on intuition and instinct. And I would say the last thing that any artist entering it should be thinking of is, is what I might be looking for. Because for any artist trying to second guess a process is just about the worst thing they could ever do. So I'd say the thing that anyone entering the wave to an art prize or any art prize, the thing they should be doing is focusing on what it is they're trying to say and never even looking at who's judging the competition. Because once you go down that route of thinking, oh, such and such is judging that, they like this sort of thing. That's the worst thing any artist can do. They have to rely on their own instincts and their intuition. And I'm afraid I will unapologetically choose the piece of work that I like the most. And that's just the way it is. You know, I've only ever judged two competitions before. One of them actually was the BP Portrait Awards. When I was the winner, I got to be a judge on the following year. And I found that quite an intense procedure, not least of all because there were seven of us. And so it was a kind of group decision, which was very, very tricky. But one of the things that I found most difficult to deal with was recognizing people's artwork who I knew and fighting against any nepotistic tendencies. And actually, I came down quite hard on myself. I thought, I really can't give someone an easy time because I know them. And in fact, there was one person who had entered a picture which I didn't feel was 
a very strong piece of work for him. So I really like his painting. And so I actually found myself arguing very vociferously against his painting's inclusion in the show to the point where I swung the vote. And I think I was just trying to make a point to myself that just because I knew someone and liked someone, it didn't have to... Um, that I, I, I was able to resist that nepotistic tendency. So I'm pretty confident that if I recognise people's work in this exhibition, I won't be giving them an easy time. Like reverse nepotism, I suppose. You're overcorrecting for one's bias. Possibly. Perhaps I'll try and keep things moderate. Well, the lucky thing is that you're not on a, a committee. You are the judge rather than a set yeah. of judges. And so you're sort of a benevolent autocracy. I don't know how benevolent you are, actually. You can be as ferocious as you like. It's autocratic. You are yeah. in charge, well, which well, I guess would make things easier. Yes, it would. But just as an aside, it's interesting to note that when I was a judge on the BP Awards, I then fell out with Brian Saul, who I mentioned earlier, the art critic, because I had actually started a portrait of him and was halfway through it when I was involved in the judging process. When I then later contacted him to arrange another sitting, he told me that I was odious to him. And when I asked him to explain that, he said that he disliked my choice of paintings in the BP Awards and thought it was a terrible selection. And I said, well, you know, it was part of a democratic process. He said, well, if you didn't like the work, you should have withdrawn yourself from the committee. And I said, well, that's not quite how democracy works, Brian. <laughs> and it later transpired that someone had entered a painting of him which hadn't made it into the show. So there was an element of sour grapes, but we never spoke to each other again. So it's a difficult process judging. It judging. is, but I mean, I suppose this is what I'm trying to get at. At what point does, I mean, this is like the sort of commercial versus creative question, you know, at what point does subjectivity become objectivity? When can you say like, that is crap? Maybe that's an easier question. I'm not sure you can, other than expressing your own opinion. I'm not sure objectivity exists within the art market or the art world at all. I'm not sure it does. I mean, I remember being at an art fair once with quite a big collector who turned to me and pointed to a what looked like a mattress that was coated in tar, I think. And he told me he'd just paid three quarters of a million pounds for that. And I looked at him and I thought, where do you go with that? How is it possible to make any sense of the value that someone places on a, a, a sort of soiled mattress. You know, I find that really difficult to deal with on so many levels because I can't help thinking of families who can't feed their children or can't pay their electricity bills when I hear someone's paying three quarters of a million pounds for a mattress. And also... Soiled mattress, yeah. A soiled mattress. But also, I suppose... There's an element of work ethic involved in my own process. You know, whether things I make take a long time. During lockdown, I spent eight months working on one painting, which was a commission. And that was really hard work. You know, that was working till one in the morning whilst I was homeschooling my kids. And I suppose that when I'm thinking of how I value my own work, I'm seeing the amount of time that that's taken. It's Obviously not the only factor, but it's nonetheless it's important. And when I see someone paying three quarters of a million pounds for a soiled mattress, I can't help but feeling confused and slightly lost. And I don't know what to make of that. 
And I don't know what the ethics of that are, and I don't know what the morality of that is. And I wonder whether that particular collector wouldn't have been better giving that money to some charity, doing something constructive with that money. Yeah. Well, you mentioned lockdown. I mean, how, how do you think lockdown has affected you know, artists more broadly? I know that's quite a, a wide question because I don't think, you know, contrary to Madonna's point of view, which is that it's affected everyone equally, I think it was pretty unequal in, in the way it affected people. How do you think it, it affected the art world? Well, I mean, first of all, at a personal level, it didn't really affect me a great deal because I live in the countryside and I work from home. And it just meant that I spent more time with my kids and I was probably more focused on what I was doing. So that was at a personal level. I'm not entirely sure how it affected the larger art world because I I really felt like I wasn't part of it at that point at all. And only really through Instagram and social media. And of course, you know, there was the whole scheme of, I'm trying to remember the name of it now, was it the Artist Pledge Fund? And I thought that was a great idea. But I think the underlying principle is that artists are generally inherently quite adaptable people because they have creative brains. And I'm sure that it hit lots of artists very hard. And, you know, lots of exhibitions were obviously cancelled. And no doubt it was a very challenging time. But I suppose when things like that come along, we all have to adapt, don't we? Mm. Yeah, well, that's quite right. And I wonder what advice you would give to younger artists who are coming through, uh, who are trying to sort of hone their craft, who are probably, you know, falling out with their lecturers at, at university. What advice would you give to them who are, are kind of looking to pursue a career, a long-term career in art? What, what tools do they need to equip themselves with to be successful in your mind? Um... Well, it's interesting because I face this question when I, I encounter A-level students because I I do some work with studio visits. I sometimes have, there's a local art school called Wyndham College in Norfolk and the lecturer there sometimes brings his A-level students for a studio visit. And I found myself facing that question, you know, what advice do I give? I mean, they're largely 17 and 18, so they're pre-degree level. But for that, I usually try to emphasize what a lifestyle choice it is to be an artist, because I'm not sure that they, that young people necessarily realize that in order to be an artist, you've essentially got to spend a lot of time by yourself making things. And I think, you know, to do that for an evening a week or during the context of an art lesson is one thing, even in the context of an art school. That's one thing. But I mean, I suppose it depends on the kind of art that one's making. I basically spent the best part of, you know, 30 something years sitting in a room by myself. And that's not for everyone. And so that that's the thing I try to emphasize, because I think that it's important to consider that in terms of how one navigates the art world and gets through it. I can only speak from personal experience and how I managed to navigate that which as I've already said was making it up as I've gone along but I just hope that these things are easier for younger people given that they have the internet and I I sort of feel that I'm not very well qualified to advise on that 
Uh, I'm not trying to sidestep the question. I'm going to go the other way. What advice would you give to teachers, so teachers in schools and universities, who are trying to train and coax the sort of talent out of younger artists? How would you focus that attention? Well, I think one of the most important things that a young artist can do is meet practicing artists. Because I never did that as a child or as a teenager until I got to art school. As I said, you know, I didn't have that cultural capital. And when I visited my first professional artist studio when I was a student at the Slade, it absolutely blew my mind. And I think what's important when you're young and you're looking at doing anything, I think seeing that that is possible and meeting people who do that is key, which is why these students from Wyndham College visit my studio, because I'm trying to give them an opportunity that I never had to meet a practicing artist. I think it's all very well encountering art teachers and art teachers may well practice art, but it's not something they're doing full time. And I think that's the difference. When I was at the Slade and I went to this artist studio for the first time as a sculptor, it was so extraordinary to see a functioning space with equipment and materials. And I remember very naively saying to him, how did you get this? How did you create this space and everything in it? You know, where did this all come from? I was trying to understand how I got from where I was to where he was. And I couldn't make the mental leap because it was so far beyond my my experience. And unfortunately, he thought I was kind of taking the mickey and he was quite rude to me in front of the other students, thought I was being flippant, and I wasn't. So that's the key element, I think. It's visiting artist studios. And if I was a if I was an art teacher, I'd be writing to practicing artists who I thought were interesting whose work I admired, who lived nearby. And I'd be saying, look, can I bring my students to meet you? Can we come and visit your studio? Would you consider doing some kind of workshop with us and just talking to us about how you got to where you are? I think that's the key element. You know, it's all very well saying, well, this is how you draw an apple. You know, this is how you you draw someone's nose. This is how you make something with plaster. You know, that's great. We can all Google that. We can all look that stuff up now, but it's very different getting to meet a real artist and talk to them and see how they got where they are. Stuart Pearson Wright, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Stuart Pearson Wright. If you want any more information or you want to look at some of Stuart's work, head to his website at stuartpearsonwright.com. Dot com. And if you would like to look at the art submitted in the Waverton Art Prize this year, then go to the online gallery at boysdaleart.com. That's B-O-I-S-D-A-L-E-Art.com. Thank you for listening. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.